Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Speaking of Resilience podcast. I'm your host, Kate Madigan with the Michigan Climate Action Network. Today, in the second part of our two-part series on siting, we're diving back into an issue that's especially important for the success of developing renewable energy in Michigan, and that's the work to find land to build new solar and wind projects and getting the projects approved by local governments. If you haven't already, I encourage you to go back and listen to last week's episode with Ed Rivett from the Michigan Conservative Energy Forum, where we talk about the siting of renewable energy and his work with local governments to build support for new renewable projects. Today, my guest is Dr. Sarah Mills, Senior Project Manager at the University of Michigan's Ford School Center for Local, State, and Urban Policy. Sarah's research focuses on how renewable energy development impacts rural communities. Among those landowners who had wind turbines on their property, 60% of them said that they did not believe in climate change. They're doing it for economic reasons. What I often tell communities is that renewable energy is perhaps the greatest economic opportunity that rural communities have seen in decades. Here's our interview with Dr. Sarah Mills. Thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast, Dr. Sarah Mills. Thanks for having me. So tell us about your work at the University of Michigan and how you got started and interested in studying local siting of renewable energy. So my work at the University of Michigan in a nutshell is to help communities across the state set policies related to clean energy. Um, Most of those policies, because you do what you know, is on land use authority. So that's master planning and zoning. Um, But I try to dabble in other things as it relates to, you know, the decisions that communities would need to make regarding renewables. I should also say that most of my work on renewables is utility scale, so the big scale wind and solar farms. Um, I did not intend to study energy, actually, when I, I, my, my PhD is from the University of Michigan in land use planning. I actually came back to Michigan after being away for a while um, to study farmland preservation. I grew up in a rural town, Monroe County, um, the far southeast part of the state, um, and wanted to look at options for rural communities to effectively stay rural. Uh, And driving up 127 to my in-law's cottage, Early on in my PhD, I saw the wind farms in Gratiot County and Googled them and learned that they were talking about wind energy as farmland preservation. And so that hadn't been studied, like proving if there's a connection between farmland preservation and wind energy. And so that's what my PhD became. Um, In the process of that work, I did a lot of interviews with township officials in those communities in Michigan with wind farms. And one of the things that came up again and again was that it was really hard to get a straight story about wind energy, um, that opinions um, about renewable energy generally, um, but wind energy in particular, are really split, often split. And people would talk about the positives and only want to talk about the positives, or people would talk about the negatives and only want to talk about the negatives, but not about both. And there's lots of misinformation out there. Um, and I, so effectively I'm trying to fill that gap. I, you know, in my work in helping communities set policies, I talk about pros and cons and try to help communities understand how renewable energy might be an opportunity for them 
or might pose barriers for them and let them make the decisions, but based on good information, because there's a lot of misinformation out there on the web. Mm -hmm. And how many local sighting projects would you estimate you've been a part of that you've yeah, been working That's on? That's a really good question. Um, I have probably given presentations to 50 communities across okay. the state. Um, most of them, so early on my work, I got a grant from the Mott Foundation based um, in Flint um, that was specifically on wind energy. And so through that, I gave about three dozen presentations um, okay. only on wind. And now my work is supported by the Michigan Department of Environment, Great Lakes and Energy, EGLE. Um, and I talk actually more about solar now than about wind, just because that's where the market is moving. And there's a, mm -hmm. and very few communities have in Michigan have planned for solar. Um, and I, through that, I've given two dozen presentations. So maybe it's closer to 60 communities yeah. in the state that I've talked to. Okay, great. I think, you know, for our listeners, just to know how much activity there is right now about siting of different projects. It's crazy. So even if you don't understand like megawatts and energy, <laughs> Collectively in the state of Michigan right now, we have about 2,500 megawatts of renewables. That's most of its wind. We've got like 2,200 megawatts, 2,300 megawatts of wind and about 100 megawatts of solar. So that's kind of what's there. In the queue, like the, the interconnection queue, the, the, to, to effectively a study that developers, wind and solar developers need to do to see if there's room on the grid to put their projects on. Um, there is a, almost 2,000 megawatts of wind, so comparable to what we have now, but 6,000 megawatts of solar. So we have 100 megawatts, and 6,000 megawatts are being studied. Um, there are, wow. it's all over the state, not just kind of the initial places where wind projects were put, um, or some of the early kind of small-scale solar projects. It's, it's really spread out, and so, um, Maybe this is just me being a planner, but I'm trying to help communities get ahead of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then from our perspective, you know, we want to transition quickly and really well to renewable energy. And, you know, Michigan has the renewable energy standard. We're about to get to 15%. So there's so much more renewable energy that we need to be building quickly. And then from that, you know, we'll get the jobs benefits, we'll get the economic benefits in these communities, we'll get the reduced pollution and addressing the climate crisis. But we have to be able to find places willing to build that renewable energy. And, and that's not always easy. So it's, that's where your work is really so critical. Yeah, it's not always easy. And I think, you know, well, it's in your name, right? The Michigan Climate Action Network. Like mm -hmm. a lot of what's driving, you know, some of your work is this idea that we need to address climate change. Right. Um, in the communities that that renewables are tend to be cited, that's not as that's not as much of a goal. So the it, the anecdote that I give is my early work in my dissertation included a survey that went out to everyone who owned property in 10 townships in Michigan that had wind farms. And among those landowners who had wind turbines on their property, 60% of them said that they did not believe in climate change. 
they're doing it for economic reasons. And so I think that that's like one of the really key things to think about is that what's motivating, I think that there are, there are different motivations for renewable energy. And you mentioned jobs in the rural communities that host wind projects. It's really economic benefits. It's, it's an economic benefit to the landowners to put solar panels or wind turbines on their property. There's an economic benefit community wide because wind developers and solar developers pay property taxes and those property taxes go to, to, um, to fund local services. And so, um, what I, you know, what I often tell communities is that renewable energy is perhaps the, the greatest economic opportunity that rural communities have seen in decades. But I would also say that it, you know, it's an opportunity and you have to decide if it fits. Does it fit with your other, you know, if, with your other plans for economic development? Um, does it fit for your, with your other plans for what, you know, you want to use that land for? Um, yeah. The other thing to kind of add into this is that the reason that I'm talking about rural um, communities here, and that's like an important distinction to make, is that um, when you just think about generation of electricity, not the whole cycle of, you know, from, for fossil fuels, you have to think about mining too. And that, that's done in a different place, right, than where you actually have the coal fire power plants or yeah. the natural gas plants. But when you just think about the generation facility, um, the a coal or natural gas power plant has a much smaller footprint um, for that generation facility than a wind turbine or solar panels. So let's say you have a 500 megawatt coal plant that you're that you're that is closing, right? Because we know actually the economics of coal mean that those plants are closing on their own accord, not because of renewables. They're just not economical to keep open. Yeah. Um, if you close that 500 megawatt coal plant, you can't put 500 megawatts of solar on that same space. The solar just takes up more land area. And so that's something that rural communities have is land, <laughs> right? And, yeah. and so in that way, it's an opportunity for rural communities unlike before. Um, there's some amount of kind of repowering that you can do at a, at a fossil fuel plant that you're closing but not tons, like you're limited. Yeah. Um, you have the benefit of already being connected to the grid there. So that's fantastic, but you might not have actually the land area. And so this is why, you know, we're, we see wind farms in farming communities. Solar can happen kind of on vacant parcels in cities, but like the big solar projects that are being planned are largely in rural areas where there's just lots of land around. Okay, that's great. That's a, and you know, you, you talk about how, um, there's a smaller footprint for coal, a coal plant than say, you know, you need more land for wind or solar. It's interesting. It makes me, it's a great picture to, to picture that. But I also think of like the invisible footprint that the coal plant has in, with the air pollution and with, and which is, um, you know, even greater than the, the land footprint of a, of a wind farm. Well, and what I would say is even when you factor in the whole supply chain, right? Like, like I said, that's just the generation facility. When yeah. you think about like all of the coal mines, the land area of the coal mines that go in, like, that supply that coal, um, we're talking about a bigger footprint. And certainly yeah. when you think about the environmental impacts, like that spreads broader. Yeah. That's, I think that that's one of these other like interesting tensions that people 
that's not often talked about is that bringing more renewables, cost-effective renewables on quickly allows us to retire coal and natural gas plants faster. We're not generally asking those same communities like shut down your coal plant and put solar here. We are asking rural communities to, who have historically been energy importers, their power is produced in that coal plant that's on the like outskirts of the city, right? We're, they've never had to see the generation facility, right, for that energy infrastructure. They've got the power lines coming to their house, but not the actual power plant. And so we're asking rural communities who have always been importers to now be exporters. You know, one, one wind turbine or two wind turbines often is more than enough to power a, a rural community, a rural township. But often wind farms come in 15, 20, 50 turbines. And so again, that's an opportunity for them if they see it that way. Like it, yeah. they might not want to be the energy exporter. And so kind of understanding that there's this shift in geography um, and that the, the impacts of renewables are quite on the local community are quite different than the impacts of coal in particular, but any fossil fuel on that local community, but it's different communities. And so mm -hmm. it's, it's not giving up the like dirty pollution impacts for a change in scenery and no, you know, potential noise impacts. It's, it's different communities entirely. Yeah. And that brings to mind, you know, in Traverse City, when, where I live, um, when we work to get um, a, an ambitious, a clean energy goal, hundred percent clean energy goal, one of the factors that motivated us was we know that a lot of our energy is coming from downstate and it's polluting communities and we don't want that anymore. So um, making, starting to make those connections, it, I think that's really happening. I wanted to ask you, um, you talked about the benefits that some rural communities are seeing. Um, and I wanted to ask you about you know, some specific examples of where that's been most effective. Um, benefits from building renewable energy and economic benefits and also seeing some tangible um, services and, and other things come to the communities as a result. Yeah, so I feel like there's, you know, like I said earlier, there are two kinds of economic benefits that rural communities get. One is kind of more personal, individual, um, the checks in the mail to people who host energy infrastructure on their property. So, you know, wind turbines or solar panels. Um, my work finds that the people who have wind turbines on their property are reinvesting that money into their barns and into their drainage systems, um, buying more tractors, that kind of thing. And so those monies are recirculating in the economy um, locally. Um, the other thing that I would say, I, you know, I, you don't see this so much on solar yet, and I don't know that we will, but on wind, it's not, it's not only the people who have wind turbines on their property who get those checks in the mail. Um, a lot of wind developers increasingly are, are effectively offering payment to everyone kind of within the vicinity of the project because the reality is you need free access to the wind blowing over their property to make wind turbines work. If a small landowner decides to put up a cell tower, that changes the wind profile downstream. Right. And so yeah. effectively they've kind of moved to this model where everybody shares. And my, my research says that's a good thing. Like that 
it helps, you know, the big landowners might get less money, but more people having like a tangible benefit, a tangible check in the mail is a good thing. Um, regardless of that, there's also this other economic benefit that's about, that's depending on the community, about the same size, really, and that's the property taxes. Um, and a lot of my um, work has been trying to understand like what local governments are doing with those monies, and it differs. Um, so some, many are effectively taking the revenues that they're receiving and putting it into the things that they've always done, right? So in rural communities, that means like putting gravel on the road. There's not you know, it's not always paving road. It could be paving road, but it's not always paving road or doing um, dust suppression on roads. Um, at the county level, like Huron County, the tip of the thumb, um, they have taken the revenues, that, the tax revenues that they've received from wind energy and put it towards their long-term like employee liabilities. This is like the pensions and the healthcare for their retirees. Oh. Michigan local governments have historic, well, well it's not just Michigan local governments. A lot of these pension funds are underfunded. Like there's, you know, there's a lot of back payments that they're, they're trying to catch up with to keep pace. Um, and so, you know, they're effectively the, the Huron County has kind of shored that up. Um, and there's a one lot of, the of wind in the thumb. Sorry? And there's a lot of wind in that area. There's been a there's lot of There's tons of wind in that area. And so this has really been a big thing. Some of my research says like that's a that's the wise fiscal thing to do, but it's invisible to people, right? Like the average citizen, like it makes their their county is is in a better financial position because they don't have all of these like outstanding liabilities, but it's not visible to to like the average person, right? They don't know. I mean, I don't know that most people would know, you know, what the financial position of their city or their county is in. Uh huh. Do you find um, that the more visible things make make renewable projects more popular in the community yeah so there was so of the 10 townships that i studied there was one township where when i asked people like have your township services improved this township stood out as like most people like a majority said yes and that township did not actually have the most turbines or the most revenue coming in but they introduced trash collection and said it was as a result of wind development. And so it's so a very tangible service that people had um, that they didn't have before that they could tie to this development. Okay. And some developers, um, this is really common in other states where they might not have as much tax revenues like the developers pay, um, also pay community benefits agreements. So this is the idea of helping the community either um, funding a community foundation where an elected board or an appointed board decides like how the revenue is distributed or just working with the local government to say, what is it that you need and how can we as you know, a, a partner, a community member here by having this big project here, help you achieve that and so financially helping that. So that's done a little bit in Michigan. Um, our, it's, it's more common in other places in part where there are fewer taxes. So in some ways, developers in Michigan are doing that through paying the taxes. Um, it's just, okay. I feel like the tax revenues are sort of invisible, right? Like it's, it's not great. Like that's how we, that's how we fund local government in the state of Michigan. But you know, I kind of, from, from most people's perspective, it kind of goes into a black box.
Okay. So we talked about the benefits. Sounds great to me, but um, I know that siting of renewable energy projects has become controversial in some places with some local governments and some communities, um, including in the Thumb, in an area we talked about, and even in the Upper Peninsula. So can you talk about why, um, you know, from your research and your experience, why some residents and local governments are concerned about wind and solar projects and why they have become controversial in some places? Yeah. Well, some of this is what I've been trying to study, um, why projects are controversial in some places and not in others. I think that the, the basic, like the basic underlying thing is that um, it's a land use change. Wind turbines, modern wind turbines are 500 feet tall. Most of the solar projects that, um, that are in the queue, effectively that interconnection queue, are big. They're on average like 800 acres. That's over a square mile. And so they change the landscape. And whether you're talking about renewable energy or an apartment, you know, an apartment building next door, like in an urban perspective, like it's a change to the landscape. And people in general, you know, these are, these are societal goals that have societal benefits, but they have local impacts. It's a, it's a change to those immediate neighbors. And so I think that that's, um, that's one of the key things to keep in mind, whether you're talking about renewable energy or, you know, I'm in the city of Ann Arbor, I'm on the planning commission here, right? Like this idea of, you know, we can agree that we need more housing, but where does it get put, right? Right. Is, is common. So this, the idea that like people like want to see perhaps some different infrastructure, but like give it a little bit more scrutiny when it's in your place is, is true. I think one of the, um, in my research, looking at kind of why though, are, why is wind controversial in some places and not in others? One of the things that I found is that different rural landowners live in that place for different reasons. So farmers, right, some of it's handed down family to family and so they have historical ties. But farmers really often value the landscape for its productivity, right? Like where you, where you have really productive soils, right? Your attachment is like those great soils. And many of them see renewable energy as just another way to for the land to be productive. And so I've heard farmers tell me like, yeah, I don't necessarily love the look of turbines, but this is how I make money off my land. And I tell people my mom's family side of the family included hog farmers and they did not necessarily love the smell of hog farming, but this is how you make your, this is how you make your living. Right. And, and this is how your neighbors make their living. And so folks who tend to be in a place for, for productive reasons, right. Tend to see wind and solar to that extent, um, fitting into that landscape a little bit more. We have a lot of um, places in Michigan, though, that have aesthetic values, right? Not just like the Great Lakes themselves. We have all of these internal lakes, right, where people go and have cottages. And often people have those cottages for the aesthetics. Like they like the look of the view when they look out their window and, and place a high value on that view. And so 
when you put wind, you know, wind turbines or solar panels right across the street, right? It's, it's changing that view. And so I think that that's where we see a lot of that, um, that conflict. The same is also true for people in kind of, um, I don't want to say suburban. It's actually like the technical term is like exurban, like beyond the suburbs. Those mm -hmm. communities that have historically been farming, but where people, you know, move out of the city and then commute into jobs, or now they can just, you know, <laughs> telecommute. Yeah, <laughs> into their job. yeah. But they move to those rural places because they because they want to get out of the hustle and bustle of the city. And again, they tend to have, they tend to place you know, an aesthetic value on the landscape rather than value it for its productivity. And so I think, you know, understanding that different people are living in communities for different reasons. And actually when, when you have people in the very same community for two different reasons, this is where you see tension and it's being brought up now from wind and solar, but historically it's also been brought up when we think about animal agriculture or when, someone you know a place where there's always been corn and soybeans and the farmer wants to put up greenhouses right it's a change to the landscape and not everybody appreciates that and so um i think it's no different in that way okay and then we interviewed ed rivet from the conservative energy forum um for the last program and he talked about professional agitators that are kind of stirring up some of the controversies maybe some of these just human nature you know differences of values or are what people want and are, are getting stirred up. Do you see um, these kind of professional agitators playing an important role in what's in the controversies? So there are certainly some faces that I see in different places that I go, uh, or, you know, the same faces, even in different parts of the state. I would say that there's they, certainly a role that they're playing in helping to connect folks who have concerns and share concerns. Um, I'm one that doesn't, I think it, it's a too simplistic of a view to say like, they're the reason. Like, I think you have to find someone locally who has this feeling, right? That like, uh, this is not what I want. Like you have to find some one in the local community. And so I think that there's a lot of like homegrown opposition um, and for very rational reasons. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that I often talk about is, uh, and, and actually one of the things that spurred some of the additional research that I've done since my dissertation, is trying to put that opposition in perspective and understand um, what is the underlying attitude in communities. I sit on the, like I said, I sit on the planning commission in Ann Arbor, and it is very rare to have more people talk in support of a project than in opposition, even if generally everybody's okay with it, right? It's people tend to be motivated to speak out when they don't like something. Um, and so a lot of my work is trying to like, is it, is, it a, is it a vocal minority or is this more widespread? And try to help local officials understand that. I mean, local officials themselves under, you know, have, a, have a good pulse on their community. Mm -hmm. But sometimes they, they need a reminder that like, just because you have 15 people speaking against it and no one speaking for it, that does not, that's not necessarily representative of overall public opinion in your community. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing that I often say when I go to communities is like, I'm going to tell you what my bias is. 
I got studying this from farmland preservation. Like when, you, especially when you have somebody coming in that's not from that community, like you need to check, like, why are they there? Um, and I think that that's a legit question that many communities are asking, not, not always, but um, I think that that's helpful um, to, to remember in kind of this. Yeah, and so getting in a community when there are differences of opinion um, among the community about a project, what have you seen that helps bring, come to a resolution that's, that's you know, results in a good resolution? Um, but is there a process in place? I know you talk about getting out ahead and planning for projects that are, that you know, we know are probably coming to most communities or proposals. Honestly, I mean, at some point, many times the places where I'm talking, it's already too late, right? Like they already have a developer there and that's not mm. the developer's fault. Like there are just, I have one of the things that I have is a database of like every zoning ordinance in the state of Michigan and who has planned for wind and solar. And I can tell you that very few communities have planned for solar and that's what's coming. And so like, what's the developer to do? Like just wait for everybody. Like communities also sadly from a planner's perspective tend to be reactive. <laughs> so but the, the, I'm going to make another strong pitch for early planning because yeah. you have the benefit of time and you have the benefit of like not having landowners who have already like signed up with the solar or wind developer. And so you can kind of think about like, how does this fit in our community generally? Right. And get the people around that process in terms of like, best practice, where have I seen it work? This proactive approach is exactly what happened in Gratiot County um, before kind of the first wind farms came. They decided like, hmm, we're doing a master planning process. We have heard early on from wind developer like, hey, this might be an opportunity for economic development and compatible with farming in our community. Let's, let's have a fully engaged public process about this. And so they did. And they effectively wrote a zoning ordinance that attracted wind to their place. They are not the windiest place in Michigan. The thumb, technically, is kind of the windiest place. But they wrote an ordinance that said clear message to developers, like, we want you here. Come here. Like, we've already hashed this out. <laughs> I'm not to say that there's not people that, were, that are unhappy, right? But you can't, this is one where it's really difficult to make everybody happy. And so it was they decided that this fit with their overall community goals and they attracted wind development that way. I think in terms of other like best practices, if you have not been proactive, right? And you're, you're, um, you're already have a developer on your doorstep and you know, how can you navigate this? I think it's really important to give people an opportunity to talk and to make sure that you're hearing all voices. There's a lot of work, um, the, the national research in renewable energy and attitudes about renewable energy um, is finding that how people feel about the process is really important to how they feel about the project overall. And so if they feel like the process was fair and open and they felt like the developer listened to them and the local officials listened to them, then they are more likely to have happy feelings about the project, um, even if it's not everything that they wanted it to be. 
And some work that I did with Doug Bissett, who's a faculty member at MSU, uh, um, we looked at this in some Michigan wind farms and found that that's important not just when you're building the project, but it also carries out years later. And that people who felt the process a few years ago was fair, their attitudes, you know, stay steady or towards the wind farm or um, improve. Where those who felt the process was unfair actually become even more upset about the project as time goes on. They don't, the idea is that they, you learn to live with it and they don't. And so for communities, what this means is, I mean, again, I sit on a planning commission. I know that there are some community concerns that are brought to me about, you know, a proposed project that I have no discretion over, that I actually can't take into consideration in the discussion. It's really, it, it, this, all of my wind and solar work has helped me be a better planning commissioner, I hope, because I, I articulate that back and I say, I hear this community concern. Let me tell you why I can't, why, why it's inappropriate for us to deal with that now. Um, we can change our laws perhaps in the future, but once we already have a law, we have to, we have to evaluate projects by what that ordinance says, not what we wish we had written into the ordinance. And I think, mm -hmm. Oftentimes, um, th that's one way that communities can actually help get ahead of this by saying, like, I hear you. This is why it can't be done right now. Okay. That's so, um, it's really interesting to think about how many communities are going to be approached in the coming years. I looked at a set of slides you have online and that, you know, a lot of solar and wind will be built in Michigan and all communities will be approached within 10 years. I think is what it said. And so that that just kind of speaks to the the real need to plan right now and get out in front of this and for communities to to decide what they want to see in their community, whether they want solar or wind and and how to plan for that. And so the second part of my question, or you know, I just I loved your response to that. And then also, what are some are there like model ordinances if a community is is interested in and um, starting to look at this, where, where's a good place for them to, to get started? So as part of this Eagle Grant, we have been pulling together some examples. I hesitate to say model because my perception, mm -hmm. perception or perspective is that there is no model community. And communities first need to decide, they need to look at their master plan. In order to have a zoning ordinance, you are supposed to base that zoning ordinance on a master plan. Mm -hmm. Just that's a public service announcement for planning commissions out there. Um, so first look at your master plan and see how renewable energy fits into that. And then figure out like, do you, you know, where, where, what type of, where within your community, what type of renewable energy, what size of project does it fit? Um, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Um, but it's, that answer is going to be different in every community. So what we've done through this Eagle project is pull together some examples, rather than a model, some examples. It includes guidance from MSU Extension, and right now I've been working with them to um, on an update to their wind ordinance. We're also working together on a sample ordinance for solar, so that's coming, but even absent that, there's other examples from across the country that I think provide some good thinking pieces. Like when you're trying to decide what setback distance you use, like how, how do you fit in this 
So um, the place to find that is michigan.gov energy. You'll see kind of our zoning database and that will take you effectively to the community energy page. Um, and like I said, there's lots of sample ordinances there. There's the database, the, the database of um, zoning ordinances in Michigan. It includes kind of uh, infor other information like the population size or the population density or the size or the kind of area of the state so that you can find communities that are like yours and see what they've done. Um, there's some case studies there as well, but also as part of this grant, I'm able to give presentations and help and some technical assistance to communities, not tons of it, but if you've got questions, you can feel free to reach out to me. Um, there's a couple Sarah Mills on University of Michigan's campus, but it's sbmills at umich.edu. Um, and so I'm, I'm happy to help um, and effectively just tell you like what, if, if you have this goal, which is that we want to attract solar development, what are the things that you want to include in your ordinance? Or conversely, if you think that solar or wind does not fit, I'm happy to help you figure out how to send that message to developers. Because honestly, it saves everybody a lot of heartburn if you are very clear in your, in your zoning ordinance that, you know, we don't think a large solar project will fit. We think a 50-acre solar project is appropriate here but we don't want to see a thousand acre solar project. Um, I can help with that. Or if you want to attract a thousand acre development, like I can help with that too, so. That's great, thank you. So we covered a lot today. Um, you have a real breadth and depth of knowledge. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you want to add to this conversation? I think kind of knowing some of, you know, having gone to um, one of the um, Michigan Climate Action Network events in the past, um, kind of the folks that I speak to there are often different than the folks that I'm talking to in these rural communities about renewables. And so I think one of the parting words that I would give to your audiences is to be empathetic when you're thinking about communities um, and kind of community reactions and do a little soul searching too. Um, and think about, you know, how would you like it if your neighbor put solar panels in their front yard? <laughs> or there, were, there was a wind turbine out of your cottage window, right? I think if you can honestly say that would not bother you at all, then that's great. If you feel uncomfortable about that, like I just, some things I think we need a little bit more empathy. Hmm. I would also say, like I said earlier, like who shows up to meetings to talk? Um, if there is a development of renewable energy development proposed in your community and you're in support of it, show up. Like, <laughs> um, I think that's really helpful. Even if it's in a neighboring community, I would say like, know that you are a guest there and you know, um, you should keep that in mind. Um, but I think it's helpful to have people show up to talk. If you're going to that neighboring community, one of the things again that you want to talk about is what's in it for that local community. Like, why, why should that community support it? Not why you support it necessarily, but again, a little bit of empathy, like recognizing that it's not this, sure it has impacts on our ability to, to, to stop the worst effects of climate change, right? But what, why should, 
why should that community have this project there? And thinking about kind of what it means for the landowners and what it means for the opportunities um, in that community. That's great. I'm so glad you brought that up because we do focus on how we can take action. And that is one really important way, especially when we're going to be seeing so many more of these proposals around the state. And also remembering that, you know, you have to know your audience and use the the best information that's going to motivate and help the decision in, in each particular community. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really great to talk with you and, and learn from your research and your experience. Thanks for having me. I, I really appreciated talking to you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Speaking of Resilience podcast. You can find more episodes of the Speaking of Resilience podcast on our website, groundworkcenter.org podcast, and on all major podcast platforms. If you appreciate this content and want more of it, become a podcast supporter by donating at groundworkcenter.org podcast, and we'll give you a shout out in our next episode. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast wherever you listen in. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. This helps other listeners find the Speaking of Resilience podcast. Like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Groundwork Center and at Michigan Climate Action Network. Speaking of Resilience is created by the Groundwork Center for Resilient Communities and the Michigan Climate Action Network. This episode was produced by Miriam Owsley and Jeff Smith, hosted by Kate Madigan.